So this morning I'm beginning a new sermon series. I've entitled it The Practical Gospel. And the idea for this series comes from what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, where he tells the Philippians this. Let me put it up there. Oh, I'm sorry. He tells them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Hear that? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, now that you have been saved, now that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, that you believe the gospel, that you're right with God, now work out the implications of that salvation. Work out the implications of the gospel into every area of your life. He is not saying work for your salvation, right? He's not saying you need to do good works in order to be saved by God, but now that you've been saved, work out the implications of the gospel into every area of your life. And so, this series is kind of going to be a meditation on Philippians 2, 12 to 13, looking at different areas of our life and what it looks like to work out the implications of the gospel into every area of our life. So we'll be looking at things like our love life today, other things like parenting, work, money, friends, church, personal growth, how we interact with the world, things like that. Again, it's kind of an experiment on how to take the gospel truth and to work out its implications into every area of our life. And so the summary statement I'm going to use um, for the gospel to base this uh, series off is this. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. Let me say that one more time. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, Trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. Notice that I put in this a past, present, and future dynamic. And so I'm going to kind of use that past, present, and future dynamic to say, well, what does this have to do with different areas of our life? And so I'm going to take it one at a time. And I'm going to look at first the past dimension, then the present, then the future. And give you three implications from each, okay? So the first is this, that we're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. This means that we are sinners who have rebelled against the holy God, that we're not right with God, that we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory and his expectations and standards. And we cannot save ourselves by our own good works. There's no amount of going to church, giving to the poor, trying to be a good person that could ever make you right with God. But God did not leave us alone in our sin, but sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we could not live and then to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. To rise again from the dead, conquering sin and death, that all who put their trust in him will have eternal life. We'll be made right with God again. That his perfect record becomes our perfect record. That we're justified, which is a term that means declared not guilty before a holy God. And all of this is a gift of God's grace, an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. We did nothing to deserve it. He owes us nothing, but he's given us this gift freely. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 sums it up well. Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. See it? He says, no amount of good works can save you, but it's a gift of God's grace that has saved you, that has made you right with God, that has given you eternal life. And when you understand that, what does that do? It humbles you into realizing that you're now, you're, you're, you, you didn't save yourself. 
You know better than anyone else. You were in need of God's grace just like everyone else. That there's nothing less than the death of the Son of God that could save you and make you right with God. It's a humbling thing to come to terms with. But on the other hand, it also raises you up and elevates you and helps you to see that you're so loved that God willingly gave his son for you. You're so loved that Jesus willingly gave his life for you. It's amazing what understanding this truly does to a person. The humble confidence it brings. You're humbled and yet elevated at the same time. So what are the implications of this for our love lives? First is this. Our self-worth is not tied to our performance, our spouse's evaluation of us, or even to whether or not we are married. Some of you really need to hear this today. Maybe some of you don't think about this at all, but for many people, your self-worth is very much tied into whether or not someone loves you, whether or not you're married, whether or not you're with someone, or what that person thinks of you. Or what you think of yourself, how you evaluate how you're doing as a husband or wife, as a boyfriend or girlfriend. I know when I was younger, this was very much how I evaluated myself. Before I knew Jesus, this was very much how I evaluated myself. Whether or not someone loved me or not. My self-worth rose and fell on the basis of that. But the more that I have believed the gospel the more that I've recognized that God loves me so much he gave his son for me, the more that has become the fundamental thing in my life. And I still struggle with self-worth. I still struggle with identity. But more and more I've come to understand that it does not matter what other people think of me. It does not even matter what my spouse who I love thinks of me. What matters is what he thinks of me more than anything else. That as Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6-8, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus died for you when you were at your worst, that he sees everything about you. He knows all your flaws, all the worst things about you, even the things that you don't even recognize about yourself. And instead of rejecting you and running screaming, he gave his life for you. That is the depth of his love for you. Paul goes on to say, you know, if God is for us, then who can be against us? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from his love. And the more that your identity and self-worth is tied into how he sees you, the more that you're not going to put your self-worth into whether or not someone loves you, whether or not the one you're with thinks you're doing a good job or not, whether or not you feel like you're doing a good job or not. And that doesn't mean that you end up then with a proud, arrogant, I don't care what you think. No, because we're humble. We realize that we're sinners saved by grace. We realize we need desperately our God. We need his help. But our self-worth is not a matter of our performance, not a matter of what we think of how we're doing, whether or not anyone else loves us or not, whether or not we have someone or not. Our self-worth is a matter of Jesus' love for us. We know we have great self-worth because of that. Very much related to that is number two, that we can live honestly because we do not fear our partner's judgment or rejection or anyone else's judgment or rejection. The more, again, that you become secure in your identity and who he says that you are and that what matters most is his evaluation of you, the more you can live honestly, take risks, be transparent about who you are because 
you're not as afraid of rejection as you once were because you know that the one whose opinion matters the most loves you and will never leave you. I've said this before, but you think of the plot of so many romantic movies and romantic comedies that come out in the movie theater, right? It's like girl meets boy, girl and boy fall in love, but the girl has a terrible secret. She fears that if the boy finds it out, that he would reject her. And things seem to be going okay, but then the secret comes out. And it looks like rejection is going to be the final outcome. And it seems like it's going to be a sad ending. But then in the end, the boy says, you know what? Even though I know this about you, I still love you. I still want you. And they live happily ever after. And you see that plot and you realize that what's going on there is this fear that so many of us have that if everyone, if the other person knew who we really were, they would reject us and run screaming. So we need to hide who we really are. We need to manage our, you know, what we show to the world. Because if people knew who we really were, they'd run screaming. But the more that we understand that our self-worth is tied into what he says about us, the more we can live honestly, the more we don't need to live in fear, the more we don't need to curate ourselves and present just the best parts of ourselves to the world or to each other. And then thirdly, looking back, that we are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace means that we can show our partner grace as a fellow sinner in need of a savior. Instead of expecting them to be perfect or perform up to our standard, we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace. So who are we to stand in judgment on a fellow sinner in need of God's grace? If we truly understand the depth of God's grace over us, the forgiveness that he has shown to us, then we can show that grace in turn to each other instead of expecting some level of perfection that we ourselves cannot even reach. Think of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. He said, this is what forgiveness is like. He said, it's like a, a servant owed a king billions of dollars and he was going to throw that servant in jail. But then the servant came to the king and said, please be patient with me. I'll pay back everything I owe. And the king had pity on the servant, forgave his debt and let him go. But then that servant went and found a fellow servant who owed him $100. And that fellow servant said, be patient with me. I'll pay it back. But that first servant said to him, no, and threw him in jail. He said, when the king finds out what that first servant did, he's going to say, you wicked servant. Matthew 18, 32 to 33. The master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And that is the attitude, he says, that we're to have towards each other. When you sit in judgment on someone else, when you expect something from them that you don't expect from yourselves, he says, you're like a servant who thinks he's the king, who thinks she's the king. Shouldn't you have had mercy on each other the way I had mercy on you? So the first part of the gospel is this, that we are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. And what that means is that our identity, our self-worth, is found in him and what he says about us. And the more that we do that, the more honestly we will live and the less we will fear our partner's evaluation or our own evaluation of ourselves because our identity is in him. It's secure in him and who he says that we are. And then we can show grace the way he has shown grace to us. Second part of the gospel is this, that we're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to to God's will. When we 
turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus, he forgives us our sins, he adopts us as his children, and he puts his Holy Spirit in us. He says we are new creations now. The old is gone and the new has come. We are new creations, and he has put his Spirit in us to help us to follow his will, to know him. And so we no longer live as we once did. We no longer see love and marriage and relationships the way we once did. We see them now through God's eyes, the way they were meant to be. We live according to the values of his kingdom. Galatians 5, 19 to 25, he says this, Paul, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See the difference there? Saying this this is what it means to live by the flesh, to live by the sinful nature. This is what it means to live by the Spirit. This is how you are to live now that you are a new creation in Christ. So again, let me share three things that this means, three implications. The first is this, that our goal is not self-centered pleasure, but to love and serve others as Christ loves and serves us. This world is very much about self-centered pleasure, about using others for our own pleasure. Maybe in the short run that might bring pleasure Happiness, short-term happiness, but in the long run, it's a miserable way to live. It's a miserable way to conduct relationships. It's a miserable way for a whole culture to operate when we just operate according to our own self-centered pleasures, looking to use others for our gratification. Because that's not the way it is to be for those who are led by the Spirit. The best understanding of our love life is found in Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, where Paul writes this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this, same way, hus- in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Obviously, we could do sermons on that passage. But the point of bringing that up is that if you look at what he is asking of husbands and wives, he says, serve and submit, serve and submit, serve and submit. That's what he's asking. Find a way to come under the other person and elevate them to make them holy. How can you bless and serve and submit to each other? 
It's not about self-centered pleasure. It's the exact opposite. How can you serve and submit and bless the other? And the goal, he says, is to make her holy. It doesn't say make her happy or make him happy. To make them holy. The goal is to make them like Jesus, that they would display the fruit of the Spirit, that love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the goal. Holiness. So secondly then, the purpose of marriage is to point to Jesus' love for the church. You know, you ask the question, what is marriage all about ultimately? More than anything else in Ephesians 5, it's telling us it's this, to point to the love between Jesus and his people. That marital love is supposed to, is designed to point people to that. The main purpose is not happiness, personal happiness. Because what happens when personal happiness becomes the main point of marriage? Marriage becomes much more disposable, doesn't it? Because if you're no longer making me happy, I no longer am in love with you the way I once was, then I can dispose of you. But if the goal is holiness, then things like perseverance and sacrifice and service become much more important. Because it's about holiness. It's not about happiness. Thirdly, so not only does this mean that our goal is not self-centered pleasure, but to love and serve others as Christ loves and serves us, the purpose of marriage is to point to Jesus' love for his church, but also we treat men and women as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? I don't know what you were like, you know, when you were younger, but... I think instinctively for men often you go out in the world instinctively thinking of women as either someone I might want to date or be with or someone I'm not interested in. And you can make these snap judgments without even thinking of it. And again, when you're a new creation in Christ following the Spirit, he says you're to view each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You're to see each other with that level of purity, that level of protectiveness. That's how you look at each other. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2 Paul says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Again, we are new creations in Christ, living according to the Spirit. And that means that we look at each other as brothers and sisters with absolute purity. That's how we are to treat each other. We see marriage not about self-centered pleasure or relationships, not about self-centered pleasure. We see it as an opportunity to serve and bless others and help others become more holy, more like Jesus. That is our goal. We don't go into the world looking to use others for our own self-centered pleasure. Third part of the gospel is this, that we are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. We know that this world is not all there is. This, when you die, it is not the end. That God has promised eternal life to all who have trusted in him. This world is not the end. It's not the end all be all. It's not, it's not you only live once. Not at all. It's you will live forever. W-Y-L-F, not W-O-L-O. You will live forever. Revelation 21, five through, 2 through 5 and 9 through 10 one of the metaphors that's used so often to describe what it's going to be like on that day is the imagery of weddings. 
says this, John writes this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now there's a lot of imagery and symbolism in Revelation, but basically he's trying to paint this picture of at the end, our coming together with God will be like a wedding feast. It's the best earthly language they can find to describe what it will be like on that day. When the people of God collectively called the bride come together with the lamb, Jesus, the one who died for us. Again, it's the best earthly language they can come up with to describe this. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean that this wedding imagery? I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, there's a group of religious leaders known as the Sadducees. And they didn't believe in life after death. And so they asked a question of Jesus trying to trick him and show him how ridiculous his belief in the afterlife was. And they asked him this question, teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all were married to her? Dun, dun, dun. They think they've got him there, right? I mean, maybe you've wondered this yourself. If you've, had, uh, if you've been married more than once, you know, is it going to be awkward for all eternity that you show up in heaven and you're like, Ugh, you know, is that the way it's going to be? And Jesus just shakes his head at them and he says this, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Not that we're going to be angels. He's saying you're going to be like the angels and that it's, it, there will be no marriage. There will be no sex. There will be no, none of that. Like, that's not what heaven's about. His point is marriage is meant to point people to Jesus and his love for the church. And once you have the real thing, the sign fades away. Once you have the real thing that that sign has been pointing to, marriage fades away in heaven. It's not about, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to be. I've never been there. But I imagine it's not quite what we imagine, that long-lost reunion with our loved ones. We'll be there with them, but it's not going to be the same. It's not like, you know, marriage and weddings. It's like, it's like us with God, with Jesus. That's the love that the love we've been looking for has been pointing to all along. He says, if you think there's marriage in heaven, you don't understand the scriptures of the power of God. You've missed all along that the love you've been looking for is not found in another person. It's found in God. You're going to have him for all eternity. The sign, the, the imperfect thing is going to fade away in the light of the perfection. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He was asked about whether there would be sex in heaven. He said this, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer, no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. 
He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. And we are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. It's a great analogy. He's saying again, the imperfections of love and relationships here on earth will fade away in the light of eternity when we have the real deal, when we have the love that our hearts have longed for all along. So out of all the possible imagery, he uses this imagery of a wedding because that's the best earthly language we have to talk about the perfect union that will be when we're with God forever. And so let me share again three implications for us today. The first is this. Marriage is not the ultimate love, so those who are single should consider remaining single. The Bible is very high on singleness. Jesus, of course, was single. Paul was single. The Bible is very high on singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, you read this. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. <clears throat> I'm saying this to you for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So this does not go for those of you who are currently married. But if you're single, again, the Bible is very high on singleness because the ultimate love is not found in another person. It's found in God. And so it is a great choice to decide I want to live my life completely for him, undivided by needing to worry about someone else. Second implication is this. Our spouse is not our savior, nor do we have to be our spouse's savior. As beautiful as those lines are in those movies, when you watch those movies and they say things like, you complete me, right? As wonderful a line as that is in the movies, that is a dangerous way to live. It's a dangerous way to live, to see another human being as your savior, as the one who completes you, because no human being was meant to carry that weight. Our spouse is not our savior, and you do not have to be your spouse's savior. I remember having a conversation once with someone who was not a believer, and they were asking me, you know, it was, they, have, they, they, were, they were struggling with the idea that I love Jesus more than anyone, and that, that, you know, was my wife jealous because of my love for Jesus, you know? Feeling like, certainly your wife should be above any, like, God, right? But no, I'm going to love my wife better when I love God first and foremost. When he's my priority, I will love her better. When I make her, you know, my everything, then I'm going to live in fear and I'm going to live in anxiety and all kinds of things. He is the Savior. We are not. And then the last implication is this. Jesus is the only perfect love, so resist the temptation to look for it in any human. Because here's the thing. For those of you who are married, you know that it is not happily ever after, right? That one day you wake up and you say, did I marry the wrong person? Or you see someone else and you say, maybe that's the person that I should be with. The grass often looks greener elsewhere. And if you think that the love you are looking for is found in a human being, then you're in trouble and your marriage is in trouble and any relationship you're in is going to be in trouble. Jesus is the only perfect love. 
and you will have him forever. You will be with him forever and every imperfect love in this world will fade away in the light of that. And that is one of the most important things that you can know if you want to remain faithful to someone for a lifetime. Because if you think this life is all there is, then what happens when you start to feel like you made a mistake? What happens when you start to feel like someone else might be better? What happens when you start to feel trapped? If you think this life is all there is, then you are going to trade in the person that you are with and try someone else in the hopes that that one might be better. But if you truly believe and know that the love that you are looking for is in him, and he will be yours for all eternity. And the purpose of marriage is not self-centered pleasure. The purpose of relationships is to point to him, to his love for the church. Then you are going to do everything in your power to love the person you're with, to remain faithful to them, as much as it depends on you. And we know that in a relationship there are two people, right? And as much as you might try, sometimes the other person does not. Sometimes the other person doesn't get it. Sometimes they leave. But as long as it depends on you, if you understand this, that the love you are looking for is found in him, it's not found in any other human being, that what you have currently is an imperfect sign pointing to the true reality, and that your relationship is meant to be a sign to others, a witness to others, pointing people to Jesus, then you will persevere even when the other person doesn't deserve it, you'll persevere because he deserves it. He deserves the glory. He deserves all the glory and honor that you can give him. So again, the gospel just gives us some incredible power and, and, and motivation when it comes to being single, when it comes to looking for someone, when it comes to being in a relationship, when it comes to being married. Wherever you are, the gospel has a lot of implications for you. Your self-worth is found first and foremost in him and who he says you are. And there's no condemnation in him and nothing will ever separate you from him. And if you're single, serve him with all your heart. Knowing that the love that you want, the, the, the great love that you're looking for, you already have in him. <clears throat> and you will have for all eternity. And all the imperfect relationships here on earth will fade away in the light of eternity when we have him. If you're married, if you're with someone, then do all you can to let that relationship be a witness to him, to his glory, to his love for his people. Not living for self-centered pleasure, but living to serve, to submit, to sacrifice. And let that vision that you will have him for all eternity be the thing that motivates you to persevere, to love when it's hard, to not give up, to not let your eyes wander. But to be faithful to whoever it is that God has put in front of you as best as you can, loving them as best you can, while finding your complete heart, your love, your joy in him, in Jesus. Let me close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our, whole, our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. 
but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Amen. Lord, we do pray and ask that you would fill our hearts with your love, that we would look to you for the love, the satisfaction, the joy that our hearts so desperately look for. For those who are single, divorced, widowed, and here, God, I pray that you would draw them close to yourself this morning, that they would find in you the love their hearts have been longing for and know that nothing can ever separate them from you. And for those who are with someone today, I pray, God, that you would help them to also draw close to you, to see in you the love that their hearts have longed for, and to be able to allow their significant other to be human, to be a fellow sinner in need of God's grace, that you'd equip them and empower them to love and serve each other, to be faithful to each other, to point others to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.